This episode of Sundays with Kate is sponsored by Hop University's Safety Sucks, the bullshit in the safety profession they don't tell you about. It's a thorough and needed rebuke of the modern safety profession. We move beyond bad ideas by introducing better ideas. The safety profession has been stagnant for far too long. Safety folks are abused and misused. They're often underpaid and overworked. They have been forced to knowingly promote flawed, ineffective, and disproven safety management systems to preach from a Bible in which they do not believe. And it's time for all of that to change. Get your copy of Safety Sucks today at safetysucks.net or on Amazon. Simply search Safety Sucks Book. Together, we can make the world a better place to work. What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. This is a love affair? I saw you, Erica. Meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Fadl. Welcome to Sundays with Kate, the podcast series about the films of Kate Blanchett. This is Mortada El Fadl, and this is our final episode recapping and reviewing Mrs. America, the TV show about the fight to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s created by Davi Waller and starring Blanchett as Phyllis Schlafly, the right-wing polarizing organizer. I am not against women working outside the home, but what I am against is a small, elitist group of Northeastern establishment liberals putting down homemakers. If we're going to catch up with the livers, we're going to need to grow fast. And my name gives us instant political recognition. It's Mrs. Schlafly, I'm married. The ERA is not about uh, equality, it's about power. And before you know it, we are living in a feminist totalitarian nightmare. Why would God put this fire in me if he didn't want me to act on it? Stop it, you're just trying to make me emotional. Thank you for having me on your show. In this episode, we will discuss episodes eight and nine, basically the finale of the show. And for the finale, I wanted to talk again with... Writer and filmmaker Taylor Montague. Hi, Taylor. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me back. You're welcome. When we talked last time, we put the show on notice on a couple of things, and I thought we could close the loop and see how the show did on those things we talked about, but also just talk about episodes eight and nine. So, episode eight is Houston, the one about um, Sarah Paulson's character, Alice McRae, and then the finale. Yes. I remember that one of your points that you mentioned when we talked last time is that you thought that Paulson must have a major role in this series. Otherwise, they wouldn't have cast her. Because, yes. <laughs> because in the first three episodes, she was a very minor character. But now we know why she was cast. Right. So shall we dig in into episode eight, Houston? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So this episode is about Alice McRae and... It's from her point of view, but the episode is about the women's national conference that took place in 1977 in Houston, Texas. And in the previous episode about Bella Abzug, we saw the preparation. But in this episode, we actually see basically all of the women that we've met in the first six episodes coming together. Yeah, they're convening in one place for the first time. Yeah, but... It is shown to us from Alice's point of view. This was written by Davi Waller, the creator of the show, and it was directed by Janiska Bravo, who is a wonderful director who you and I have seen her movie Zola at Sundance this year. Yes, yes. Wow, at Janiska being the director. I don't know how that went over my head, but also how befitting. It's so befitting. Yeah. Like now that I'm seeing it in my mind's eye like a lot of the sequences i mean Janiska is a great entrance into this episode because this episode doesn't look or feel like any of the other episodes obviously the writing is still the same but i think even the writers because alice is not a real person who lived it's a composite character so they had the freedom to basically do whatever they wanted by getting Janiska Bravo to direct. This episode looks different than all of the other episodes. Yes. 
very much an outlier episode, but in the best way. Kind of takes us there, gets really um, absurd on a show that kind of, I think, has very stringent storytelling otherwise. And yeah, I really, really loved this episode. Um, and there are just little details about it that really stuck out to me. Um, mainly kind of Alice's, not switch, but her realization that, you know, they don't really have any real enemies and that they're kind of pawns, essentially, in Phyllis's game at seeking seeking political uh, power and her ambitions to turn that power. And, you know, she puts all the, the names of the women on a floppy disk, right? Because she wants to turn in those names uh, to Reagan and other Republicans as a means of saying, look, I have all these people behind me. I have all this... I have this movement that once latched onto your movement can give you a little more momentum, right? Because at the end of the day, Phyllis is a politician. Yes. Um, and Alice is a victim, mm-hmm. essentially, yeah. of her political ambitions. You know, there's even that uh, moment where she goes, do you care about me? Yeah, it's, it's very <laughs> poignant and sad. It hits, right? Yeah. And I even like the fine line in which Alice can identify that there is something wrong with the ideology, but doesn't completely turn her back on it because she does benefit mm-hmm. from the kind of conservatism that her and the other white women um, are advocating for. Yeah. Uh, even though, you know, there are moments <laughs> that, that the contradictory nature is pointed out where like Bella's like, you know, oh, you guys are like putting together PR, you know, statements and mailing lists. And so you are working women, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. how can you say, I don't yeah. want to work, I want to do this. And actually what you were saying is what I loved about the characterization of Alice is that she doesn't, it is, this episode is totally a fantasy episode, but also Alice doesn't do the transformation. She doesn't go from, you know, she doesn't go 180 degrees. She goes just maybe 10 degrees, just a little bit. Her eyes are opened a little bit, not too much. It would it would have been too easy mm-hmm. to have her 180. I think I really liked how, you know, she only kind of moves over a little bit. She doesn't quite abandon the other women she works with. Instead, she just, you know, needles them a little bit on their the points that they're making. Um, and I even, like, I feel like the way that this was visualized in the episode was, you know, um, she has on that wonderful purple dress. Mm-hmm. And even while she's, like, gallivanting across the hotel and at this conference, eating food and, you know, with her hands and stuff, she never gets her dress dirty. That's so she's, true, yeah. You know, these communities, you know, she goes to like, where they say like, oh, the Gay Alliance room still has food, right? So she goes into these spaces that she typically would not be within. And she engages with these people. She eats their food. She sings songs with them. But she never quite gets her hands dirty in some sense. You know, she never quite advocates for those groups of people. Despite, in some sense, being in those spaces and knowing that she's wrong in her preconceptions of those groups of people. Yeah. Totally. I mean, the show ends with her going to the rally organized by Phyllis with the help of the clan. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, so it's like she's not completely off the hook. She's very much complicit in in the kind of oppression and the kind of you know right wing ideologies that these people are pushing up against. Even though she's yeah. held space with them, and I like that. In a sense, we don't get to let her off the hook, even though she saw their humanity. You know, what is the value in that? If at the end of the day, you're still gonna go to you know rally with the clan so i i like that a lot yeah i think it's no coincidence that they called her alice because this episode is obviously a homage to alice through the looking glass and everything in it there is an actual visual looking glass where the minute she gets high so just to set the story up she meets another woman at a bar she's separated from her other um stop era people she meets this woman who she thinks is a conservative woman she's not she's a lesbian member of now who gives her a value she says it's a Christian pill, but I think it's a Valium. And so <laughs> so she's drunk and high. And she goes out, she's looking for food. And there is a moment where she's out in the street and she looks into a store, the glass window of a store. And that's literally Alice through the looking glass. So this show is not subtle, but I still enjoyed it. <laughs> Same, the scene with the nun and the communion wafer. Also, that kind of juxtaposition of high and low is very Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And the nun 
sometimes she has her own voice and sometimes she has Phyllis's voice, which was also funny. Yeah, kind of creepy too. (laughs) Very creepy. You're a woman. You can't consecrate the Eucharist. I've always said, women can do whatever they want, Alice. Just talking to people who are watching the show, a lot of people had different reactions. They either loved it so much and everyone was like, this is the best episode. And some people were like, well, this feels different. This is not like, this is not what I'm used to. But I like that the show mixed it up. Honestly, the thing I like about it actually, beyond kind of the mixing it up, was that we get to know, I think her name is Pam, a little more intimately. Pamela, played by Kaylee Carter. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) my memory serves me correct, thank goodness. I like the the kind of calling out or calling attention to the fact that in some sense, these housewives have the same gripes with womanhood that they're pushing back against, which I, I don't know if you remember but an early critique of ours in our previous conversation was that, you know, there wasn't quite at that time enough of an indictment on these women in a way that like showed how they were victims of sexism, but like, without like buying into their own victimhood, without making them seem like um, damsels in distress in yes. some sense, you know, or, or, you know, there was like the criticism about Phyllis being portrayed as like a girl boss, yes. um, which was the criticism I had so more so in, in the filmmaking, the kind of sequencing of her doing the newsletters and like getting it done, you know, with the music and everything. And I really liked how there was just like this moment where, you know, you realize that one, not all these women are, are rich because she couldn't afford to fly and that her husband is kind of abusive. And I was rewatching the uh, Bella episode where I didn't pick up on it the first time, but Pamela runs out of the meeting at one point. Afraid. Like, yeah. Because Kevin calls and mm-hmm. thinks he's there. So I think that like the little nuances, kind of the threads of storytelling that are unfolding in episode eight were really satisfying to me. Yeah. I think is what I'm trying to say. And also, I love Sarah Paulson. Yes. About it. Okay. (laughs) I love her. Queen of having a lisp. I understand. (laughs) I have an overbite. Sometimes words come out a little, you know. So, (laughs) real recognize real. I really like her. And I also thought that I liked how the the episode kind of hones in on the cult of Phyllis's personality in terms of like... Mm -hmm. The way they talk about her is kind of strange. The way that, you know, Alice is like, she made me vote. She made me see some part of myself I didn't see before. She, made, You know, and the woman's like, you don't seem like you have a hard time articulating yourself. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, she is their goddess. Yeah. Um, I really loved what, what the show did with the Pamela character, what you were talking about. Because similar to what they did with Margaret Sloan, who is not shown in many scenes. And go back to my the previous episode where I interviewed Bria Simone Henderson, who played Margaret Sloan. Is yeah. that these two women don't have that much to build a character. It's very economical. It all, She only came into focus in these two episodes. And we got a whole story about this woman who's abused, who's trying to get out. And then in the finale, when we talk about it, her story ends in that she couldn't escape because Phyllis wouldn't help her. So I like that arc of Pamela. It's, it's Yeah, there's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? She goes, if I go back, I will only end up having another child. And in the next episode, she's holding a baby. Yeah. But let's go back to Sarah Paulson because she is amazing beautiful performance and she is the sort of actor who has a very expressive face Mm -hmm. and this episode like the fantasy elements of it i think needed an actor like that because there is not much in the text alice keeps it very close so Mm -hmm. she doesn't say a lot but it's all in sarah paulson's face so she was like the perfect actor to take us on this fantasy trip through houston through the convention to show us all these characters i loved all the little scenes of her like recognizing brenda fagan fasto's like cite the case or you know her scene (laughs) with nisi nash's flo kennedy like all she was the person to to bring all these women sort of together in her story. And also kind of exposes that Alice was the most well-versed out of the group, right? Was the person that was really, to use shorthand, right? Keeping her ears to the streets in terms of who, who's the who's who. The fact that she knew 
the women by face could identify their their kind of rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. And then connect with it on a certain level, even though she later, you know, kind of rejects it, which is fine, but or maybe finds the wrong word, but makes sense in the trajectory of her life because she has to go back to her community, has to go back to being friends with Phyllis, has to go back to supporting those women. But yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting using her as a vehicle to kind of put everyone in one place and to explore the different aspects of the movement and what they were going through. Because I think it would have been too easy to just have Phyllis also be there. Mm-hmm. You know, she be the one that ties all the strings together, you know? And also maybe she's not quite as smart or has the vision or has, you know, that Alice has in terms of, Alice really wants to see things through. Yeah. She has a commitment there that's bigger than, than Phyllis's because Phyllis has a very selfish commitment. To her power, basically. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Phyllis returns in this episode as a nightmare, which is fitting. It just fits that Phyllis would be Alice's nightmare, our nightmare. She's literally our nightmare. And yeah. so I love that this is how they brought her back. And that scene where she's trying to choke Alice. I felt it deeply in that she is, she is somebody who is against equality in like, just to further her agenda. So the fact that they showed her choking Alice was very appropriate. Yeah, she wants to put a muzzle on the women who challenge her. Um, she continually does. Or she tries to manipulate situations in which they feel that they are winning um, so that she can come out on top with her own agenda. You know, it, it's not a real community in some sense. I mean, they're all just like working for her uh, and not realizing it. But, you know, like, something I had said about the show when I was watching it early on was like, these women are bored. They are in the house bored, right? You know, and she's exploiting that yeah. to, to her benefit, um, which is really ugly, of course. And I'm happy that we see the ugly sides of Phyllis as well. You know, it wouldn't serve the show to just, you know, have her be this um, enterprising politician was getting it done, you know, like there's a, it comes at the expense of many people. Yeah, absolutely. Our sons were in the same class. She looked so different than the rest of us. She was the first woman I knew who not only understood politics, but also she was so smart about it. I think I'm just smarter by knowing her. So I want to ask you a question. So this is how I felt, but I want to see, am I crazy? So in the scene where she's in the bar, she's talking to wonderful Broadway actress, Julie White, who's playing the woman who gave her the Valium. And so she's talking about Phyllis and she's talking about Phyllis in these loving tones, very hagiographic, as if we, we already said she Phyllis is their goddess. But I also felt that there were some like, queer tones there or is this just me is alice in love with phyllis or the idea of phyllis julie white in that the other woman in that scene presents herself as a lesbian as somebody who has lived a long time with a man and then after he her husband died she basically says i fell in love with my um best friend and so i was sitting there and i'm like wow is alice coming out (laughs) with her love for phyllis Am I crazy or am I projecting because we know that, you know, Sarah Paulson is a queer icon and all of that? Um, I don't think it's projection solely because the conversation is set up in a way that parallels the two uh, situations of love. You know, it'd be different if this was like the woman, um, Julie White, excuse me, had not brought up falling in love with her church sister. But, you know, Alice is kind of gushing about Phyllis. And then she goes, Julie White goes, I felt, I felt the same way. Yeah. I felt the same kind of love in this other person, in this comfort in this other person after my husband passed. Um, and the fact that they were on the same page prior to this woman saying, oh, I'm in now. You know, I think furthers that idea, right? That, like, you know, she didn't put two and two together. This was very natural to her. It's very organic to express her love for yeah. Phyllis. You know, she's like, well, Phyllis walked in the room. She was just different. And, you know, I I couldn't keep my eyes off her. And I just, you know, we became friends after that PTA meeting. And, like, Alice is always at Phyllis's side. And if you watch even earlier episodes of the show, she has this look in her eyes. Like, it's definitely love and reverence. But I also believe that, you know, I believe there's room for that kind of love in those relationships, too. 
I think it could play either way. It, I think it's up for interpretation. Like, obviously, the, the Alice, it will be completely out of character for her to be like, oh, I'm in love with Phyllis. But I just felt that there is something there. It's It could be in the performance. It could be in our perception. It could be in the way that they set it up. But it just made the scene more interesting and gave it different shades. And I also think that it's, it's interesting to point out how maybe Alice doesn't have or didn't have the tools to parse through that love until she was in that space with that woman yeah. or in these spaces with these people who are like, no, I, I'm in love with another woman. Like this is, this is the life that I live. And yes, I was married to a man before and I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. And I think it's interesting that in a conversation with a woman who has lived that life, it allowed her to open up and actually say, you know, actually from the moment I laid eyes on her, I've been obsessed with Phyllis. You know, she changed me. She's the reason I wanted to be a better person. Those are really big things to say mm-hmm. about another person and backs up what we've seen and what we continue to see. Because in the end, Alice doesn't ever really quite, I mean, they have their little moment in episode nine, mm-hmm. but she doesn't ever really quite leave Phyllis's side. Not really. No. Yeah. So we talked about how Sarah Paulson is amazing, but also how funny was she in this episode when she gets high? She's in that scene with Nisi Nash and she's trying to eat and she's like, I invented a new way of eating. Yes. <laughs> so, so funny. And she gets to sing. It's such a showcase episode for her. And just, it was just really a joy to watch. It's our favorite song at home. I learned it with all my kids when they were in school. Mm. Woody Guthrie wrote it. Oh, he's a poet. He's a socialist. (laughs) Come on. Don't be ridiculous. You were up there belting out a Marxist song. Oh, no, no, no. It's patriotic. Exactly. I think so much to it, what I love about the show, obviously the performances are stellar. And I think about a lot of, like, choices that are made by actors who seem to have had this space, and I think this speaks a lot to the people who direct the show as well. You know, like one moment, I believe in either episode eight or nine, that stuck out to me is when um, Betty, who's played by Tracy Ullman, I believe, goes to visit Gloria Steinem, getting highlights for her hair. And she like looks in the mirror and she's talking and then she sprays hairspray on her own hair, puts it down and then starts speaking again. And like just those little tiny moments to me like feel really lived in and thought about you know so like when sarah paulson's eating out of the tray that was in the garbage and i think um is her name melanie linsky melanie linsky who plays rosemary thompson yes yes oh my god rosemary is something (laughs) (laughs) but when she's about to leave and she reaches back and puts her hand in the pan again to get a second bite like i completely died i love that moment i love it (laughs) And Rosemary was so mean to Alice in this episode. Throughout the episode, she was so mean to her. And Melanie's just delicious being mean. It was so good. Yeah, and her 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 brand of mean is so. Oh my god! It's just because it's couched in this like very nice language and mm-hmm. smile, and, like very you know meek voice. And but she is a lot and has very similar ambitions as Phyllis, which is really interesting. But maybe not the the resources or the wherewithal to act on those interests or to see them through. But even like, oh, I'm going to write a book called The Price of Liberty. Like, girl, <laughs> you know what I mean? She wants that visibility. Yeah. She certainly has the ambition, but like you said, not the tools. Right. You know, she's like, those brought me here to delegate. I am delegating. Okay. <laughs> My favorite scene in this episode is the scene where the women are all on the floor and they pass the resolution and they sing we shall overcome the episode is about sarah paulson and we're following her but this is the scene where we see basically everyone we see brenda fagan fasto we see joe ruckel's house we see margaret sloan we see um flo kennedy we see bella upsa gloria Steinem. everybody that we've spent time with in the last few weeks is there and it's such a hopeful moment they're all happy it reminds me of Something, I think, from The Hours, um, that movie where Meryl Streep says, and I thought, that's the moment, and there are going to be so many moments like it. But what I didn't know was that that was it. And so I'm paraphrasing the Meryl monologue. But anyway, I think you guys get the point in that 
it was such a hopeful moment and they were thinking that this is the start of something big and something huge and change is coming and we know that was it that was their moment which makes the scene just so beautiful to watch and enjoy it is interesting watching a show like this with the foresight to know that a lot of the dreams that they had or the strategies that they would employ would not work i can see how it could be frustrating but what i like about the show is that I think it got better as, as it went along about not necessarily trying to foretell the future. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a moment in which it's like everyone is living in this because they sincerely do believe there will be a future and there will be other moments, like you said. Yeah. And it's felt in the acting, it's felt in the way it's shot, it's felt in the, you know, it doesn't necessarily feel like um, the end. And I think that that scene could have easily been like a, you know, um, fortune teller-esque, this was it, you know what I mean? Pulling yeah. Out moment yeah and do that you know what i'm saying it was very to the point it was very um communal as well even though these women didn't see eye to eye about a lot of things so we'll be back in a moment to talk about the finale this episode of sundays with kate is sponsored by payoff.com You've tried balance transfers and budgeting, but high interest rates and unrelenting bill cycles make it impossible to get out of credit card debt on your own. Instead of another new saving technique, you need a clear pass out of debt. And that's what a payoff loan can do. A payoff loan is a personal loan backed by member-centric credit unions designed to help you pay off your credit cards with rates as low as 5.99% and loan amounts up to $35,000 with no hidden fees and personal customer service support from Payoff to help you reach your financial goals. Some of the benefits of a Payoff loan may also include potential credit score boost, one monthly payment, and savings from lower interest rates. Go to payoff.com slash sundayswithkate to learn more. Checking loan rates won't affect your credit score. Try something new. Pay off your credit card debt with Payoff. NMLS ID number 1396805. Not all applicants may qualify. Loans only available within the United States. Loan is not available in all states. Payoff works with lending partners who originate the loans. Additional terms, conditions, and eligibility requirements may apply. More information is available at payoff.com slash Sundays with Kate. Now back to Sundays with Kate. So the finale is called Reagan. The episode mm-hmm. is written by Davi Waller and Joshua Allen Griffiths and directed by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. This to me also felt like a different episode than all the other episodes. It was tying all the threads of the narrative, but it also was very melancholy. And mm-hmm. I think as an hour of TV, to me, it was the most accomplished, just mm-hmm. from a directorial point of view. This episode happens in 1979 and 1980, so it's the election. And mm-hmm. part of it is how the women's movement under Carter basically fizzled. Because mm-hmm. they did that conference, but they never actually were able to enact any laws or do anything because he wouldn't meet at them. And then he fires Bella Alpsog and then everybody resigns in protest. And then mm-hmm. it just goes away. And for Phyllis, this is where she gets her power, basically. She mm-hmm. gives, she endorses Ronald Reagan, gives him her mailing list, and expects that he's going to appoint her to the cabinet. And it ends with the call that he calls her after he wins the election. And of course... He doesn't give her any cabinet positions because she might be too polarizing for him. I love the, the resignation scene. I don't like how they did Bella. I'm not going to lie. I didn't like that. Um, and I thought it was interesting how they pushed her. At, well, they fired her, right? They pushed her out of power. And then tried to replace her with Carmen, who's like this woman of color. Mm-hmm. Um, which felt very much like a PR strategic kind of move. You know what I mean? Yeah that they don't stop being progressive just because they've changed the face. In fact, um, look who they changed it to. Yeah. And she doesn't have it. She resigns, and they all resign. I really love that scene. I thought it was really powerful, just in terms of, like, collective action, which mm-hmm. outside of these kind of big convention floor scenes or scenes of protest, we don't see as much as that kind of communal collective action in very small or seemingly small levels, right? Yeah. Um, especially amongst a group of women who are constantly 
on completely different pages about how the movement should go and how they should move forward. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of happy that they had Bella's back. And I had Bella's back when they had Shirley's back a few episodes prior. Yes. Must that say. But nonetheless, um, I was happy to see that. Yeah, I, my whole, like, I was just thinking, men are really awful. Like, through that whole, throughout that whole sequence, like, mm-hmm. that little twerp, there is just, the actor is great. He, yeah, he's he really, like, his neck. Yeah, he's just firing her, he's being obnoxious to everyone, and I'm glad they stood up to him, because men are awful. Yeah, and I think, because, you know, he's in a position, I thought it was really interesting, too, how they thought that they had a win by mm-hmm. getting the president for two hours. As yeah. opposed to the 15 minutes, you know, like, they canceled the schedule. And yeah. It doesn't just some big win for them, only for him to turn around and essentially dismantle the committee. All in all, it was really wild to watch, Yeah, actually. Because you, you, you're with them on their highs, and you're definitely there during their lows. And and no one really came out a winner in all no. of this, which I really think the episode exemplifies, right? Like, Phyllis did not get what she wanted. No. Um, so was it worth it? <laughs> I mean, this is what I loved about this episode, actually, is that who won? Nobody. They all lost. They won some things. I mean, Phyllis became a national power. She got some power, so she won some things. She Mm -hmm. got to shape the campaign in a way and shape the Republican Party in another Mm -hmm. way. And, um, you know, Gloria Steinem and Bella Upsuck, they got something along the way. They are recognized for their contributions. Charlie Chisholm obviously had a lot of contributions. So they want them some things. But in 1980, they're basically all losers. And I love that that it's kind of a, you know, the, the, the series was about this fight between the second wave feminists and Phyllis Schlafly. And for it to end with all of them losing, losing mm-hmm. something, I thought really felt true to history, but also just to the way that women's movement don't progress that much. Like, I think it what Gloria Steinem says, you know, it comes in wave and a wave goes and then it recedes. And this was mm-hmm. definitely a huge callback and recession. Mm-hmm. And I also think it was interesting how the show kind of sets up these plot points in which you can see why the wave receded, right? I mean, yeah. especially when I'm, I'm talking about the kind of rallying behind Bella, but not giving sure each other that same respect. Michael Stone's issues at Ms. Betty Friedan not supporting, you know, lesbians' place mm-hmm. in the movement, right? Their lack of inclusivity um, became a problem. Yeah. Um, and so I like how the show offers that up as a critique while concurrently critiquing Phyllis and the conservative women that she stood for. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the let's make America great again button that was just on. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. I thought that was so cheeky. Yes. <laughs> um, especially juxtaposed with seeing at the end of the episode when they kind of tell us what became of these people. Mm-hmm. That her last book before she died was The Conservative Case for Trump, which I did not know. First of all, I'm not going to lie. This is my ignorance. I did not know she lived that long to essentially see this kind of rise again. Say she that. did not but, live long, though, to see him elected. So... Okay. Get that, Phyllis Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> so did she win? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but she wrote a book, right? She had to have yes. some, some foresight. Like, she was yeah. ready. For her she moment. was ready, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. one of the things that we talked about when we first discussed episodes one to three that I had a problem with was I felt the show was hammering too much, like, oh, look, this is happened in the 70s, but it's also happening now. And, but actually, as the show progressed, that became one of my favorite things, these callbacks. It became, yes, they were telling the story of how the Republican Party went extreme right as one of their narrative threads. So I appreciated more. And, you know, maybe that Phyllis wearing that was like a little bit too on the nose, but Mm -hmm. I did appreciate it. It's like, you know, they're trying not to be subtle at all. They're like, this is our point. Let's hammer Mm -hmm. it in. This is what happened. So I came around on that. Yeah, it became more justifiable and organic as well, though, because when you talk about a figure like Reagan, like, mm-hmm. there are so many parallels between Reagan and our contemporary president. <laughs> but, you know, even, like, being a, an actor and going to the peanut farm to, like, make fun of Jimmy Carter, right? These, like, tactics um, that he was employing um, are pretty on the nose for how our current situation went 
a couple years ago. And, you know, being in an election year, too, is really interesting to watch the show. <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I read um, some interviews with Davi Waller, and the show was green-lighted the last election year when everybody mm -hmm. thought Hillary was going to win. And after Hillary lost, they actually had to regroup and change some of the story they're going to tell. And so they added this element of how the Republican Party went to the extreme right after that to make the mm -hmm. show more relevant. And the show, I think, was going to be five episodes. And so telling a bigger story meant that they added three more episodes. I'm like, you know, honestly, I have to say, and this is very selfish of me. I could have watched three more episodes of this. Totally. This could have been a 12-episode, 13-episode show. So it's interesting to me that they decided to build upon that world more. And while, while, by the time it was over, I was kind of disappointed. I was like, oh, that's it, you know? Yeah. Um, no, yeah. I wanted to stay with them a little more. So let's go back a little bit to 1979 in the show and that Phyllis stop ERA gala because that was the high comedy. We got high comedy from Sarah Paulson last episode, but we got high comedy from Melanie Linsky mm -hmm. doing the two little feminist skit. Which dressed as Gloria Steinem. Yes, dressed as Gloria Steinem. And I'm sorry, I don't know the, the actor who played, uh, played quote unquote, Bella Abzug, but they were both so funny. That was so... So funny. And my favorite moment in that is the cutaway to Kate in the background as Phyllis mouthing the words to the song, but also mm -hmm. she doesn't really know the words. She's out of tune. It was really well done. Really funny. She's, she's the puppet master. <laughs> she is. Yeah. Literally in this case. Mm hmm. And also this episode in her relationship with her, with her husband, it shows us that, you know, she decides to endorse Reagan, even though her husband wants to wait. And they cut to Joan Slattery's face and shows you the shift in the power in their relationship. Previously, when this has happened in like the first couple of episodes, she would not have dared to do that. And she and he would maybe have protested immediately. But this episode shows him first that he accepts that she's now the powerful person in the marriage. And in the next scene, he even calls himself Mr. Phyllis Schlafly, which he was hurt was before when, when that was said in the newspaper. It's interesting to juxtapose that situation with the Kevin and Pamela situation in which she tells Pamela, you know, a husband has to feel valued and needed and, and make the executive decisions in a relationship. So if he said you couldn't come to this gala, you can't come to this gala. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so how she's contradicting herself essentially because she doesn't see Pamela as her equal. Yeah, like you said when we first talked, she thinks of herself as exceptional. She never thinks of these things that she preaches that they apply to her. She's she's the exceptional person who all the rules should be broken for. She's also very mean to her um, sister-in-law, played by Jean Triplehorn, when she never yes. mentioned her in the gala. Yes. But I love that Jean the show... Jean got her little boo. <laughs> she <Jean> did. Got... <laughs> I love that the show gave her a happy ending. So that yes. was so, yeah. It's she like... deserved. She deserved it. Yes. She totally did. Also, one thing that I really loved about this episode, and I think of all the narrative threads, this was the one that was closed brilliantly, is actually two narrative threads that were closed brilliantly. One was the Alice Phyllis story, and they have a talk, and, and Phyllis says to her, you used to feel empowered by me, and she's like, I used to feel scared. And so this was a nice way to end that story. And then she just leaves her standing there and drives away. And I thought that the Alice Phyllis storyline was just done brilliantly from beginning to end. And that was like a very strong ending to it. Yeah, I also thought it was interesting how like Alice was even in the center of the BS that, that these women are spouting a lot of the times was the moral compass. Even when um, Phyllis is making the mixtapes. Uh, where she's taking these speeches, these words from these speeches out of context and putting them, stringing them together to send to people to recruit. Alice is like, but that's not what they said. Mm -hmm. That's not how they said it. Because she, she knows, she has some sense of, when she's like, this, this isn't Christian. She has some sense of, of I want to say morality. She I hate to give her that, but yes. <laughs> Definitely more than Phyllis. Yes, exactly. <laughs> she does yeah. have a little bit of it. And the other narrative thread that I felt was closed really well is 1980 was a, not a good year for Democrats. And so mm -hmm. there's that phone call between Bella 
and Shirley Chisholm. So Shirley Chisholm is back in Congress and Mm -hmm. Bella calls her to congratulate her. And we've seen, it's a very sad moment and, you know, they're basically both defeated, but Bella says to her, hold the door for the next bunch. And the way Uzo Aduba is receiving that message and then she says, thank you, Bella, and puts down um, the phone, it sort of hones in. There is hope because there is a next bunch maybe coming, mm-hmm. but this was such a huge defeat. And I just, I loved how they closed the story on those two women. Especially because in a, in a sense, you know, Bella did not hold the door open for Shirley. No, she didn't. At all. And I think she knows that she had to contend with that in her own way, but being Bella would not explicitly say, look, I did you dirty. So that was her way, I think, of also kind of addressing that. Yes. And I may be giving her a little too much, but it felt a little bit like an atonement between the two. Yeah, absolutely. In At least in the way that those actors played the scene. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And, they, and they're brilliant. And it was Oduba. I wish, I'm not going to lie, I kind of wanted more Shirley. Yeah. Wanted more Margaret, wanted more Flo. What can you do? But, you know, that was someone who um, definitely I would love to see have a little more say. Um, and maybe a future project. I'm not normally someone who advocates for like biopics and things like that, but I also think that the miniseries has provided a really interesting form to tease out these these threads and to explore one's life. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see more about Shirley or hear more about Shirley. I know there's a documentary um, on Barton and Bust 72 by Shala Lynch, Mm -hmm. but just Uzo plays it so beautifully throughout the show and does a lot with such little. But if she got more room to play, I would love to see how that looks. Yeah. I mean, uh, biopics work. Like this show, which is telling a specific story in a specific time, it really works. Mm-hmm. So I am sure there are other stories mm-hmm. that Shirley Chisholm was part of. that could And factors be into, yeah. Especially yeah. being on Congress, especially, you know, seeing her with the, the gray hair, you know, this is someone who told much of the end of her life, right, served the public. And so yeah. there has to be another story in which she had her hands in, in reform. Yes. Um, for the people that she was advocating for, and I would love to see that. Yeah, I seen that that I loved, but also kind of drove me a little crazy because as somebody who loves Kate so much, and I've seen that face in so many movies and so many mm-hmm. times, is the scene where she's in the elevator with all the men, and this mm-hmm. is basically Phyllis's triumph, mm-hmm. right? She is in the inner circle of Ronald Reagan, and he's going to win. And she's surrounded by men, and it's a close-up, and she gives us that half-satisfied smile, mm-hmm. which, looking at the same face that played Carol Erd, was such a disconnect, because that half-smile is kind of the smile that she gives at the end of Carol. Mm-hmm. But also here, it, it signifies different things. It signifies this evil, self-satisfied woman's moment of triumph. So mm-hmm. it was disconcerting, but also I still loved it. Oh, I loved when she's on the phone and he's like, sorry, not you. Oh, her face, yeah. the way it just drops and the way it's like, you know, she's receiving that information from the top to the bottom. Oh, man, it was so satisfying for me. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know? the whole, I think that's definitely as they say her Emmy reel from the moment her husband comes in and he's like Ronald Reagan's on the phone mm-hmm. until she puts the phone down. Like that's a three minute masterclass she's so amazing it's all in the face all the emotions are on her face and mm-hmm. this is you know this is that that cliche where it's like it's a face with a thousand emotions but it was yeah truly it's, it's funny because that that question i asked like was it worth it i think you also kind of see that in there a little bit too like i gave so much i did so much i to some extent maybe she wasn't compromising but did compromise right she compromised her relationship with her son mm-hmm. because of her beliefs she compromised her relationship with her daughter yeah, she compromised her family, her relationship with the people she, she yeah. I hope, loves and I imagine does love to be Phyllis Schlafly on TV, to be this woman. And only to at the, the height, right? Right at the, the tip of getting what she really wanted all along, which is always a, a, a ploy for it, right? Because remember when we first see her go to the Hill, she's in that meeting. They're like, oh, you should talk about women's issues. She's like, I don't have any interest about women's issues. And then her wheels kind of turn. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, actually, this is my entryway in. To have that door closed at the very last possible moment was so interesting to to see, and also it was just like to some extent, like she deserves that. That's what, that you know you have that kind of like as a viewer because she's not a likable character. You have that. That's what her ass gets. Um, 
and also isn't a likable person in real life. I want to make yeah. that distinction as well. But to see it play out, you're just like, damn, you hate to see it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what people have been talking about, about that last episode is obviously the call back to Jan Dillman, the Chantal Ackerman movie mm-hmm. from 1975. So there, you know, if you watch this show and you're listening to this podcast, you probably saw that picture of the last shot of Mrs. America was the last shot of Jan Dillman. And I heard this um, podcast with Kate last mm-hmm. night and they asked her, what would you advise people to watch if they want to know more about women in the 70s? And she's like, they should watch Chantal Ackerman movies. So mm-hmm. obviously this was something that they planned and mm-hmm. because it's a recreation of the final shot, basically. She sits down, peels the apple and and I think it's sublime mm-hmm. in that this is somebody who was advocating for homemakers and find and in the end she's at home and also putting her just as a woman in the place where most women do most of their work, which is what the Jan Dillman movie says. Um I thought it was a perfect ending to this series. It's her resignation. Yes. You know, she turned in her letter. It was, that was it. I didn't, I, she did not get what she wanted specifically, but I was an ambassador to the UN role. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she resigned herself to, I mean, we know she doesn't stay in her old life, but speaking in that moment, in that frame in 1980, mm-hmm. and not looking to the future, but staying in that moment. You know, she resigns to going back to being a homemaker. And, you know, Obviously, we know in the future she does not continue to do such, but I thought it was a nice note to end. It was a full circle note to to end the uh, the miniseries off. As a piece of TV, I thought this episode told a full story, even though it was a story narratively that might have been hard to tell because nobody wins. They basically gave us nine hours of a fight between two parties, and in the end, they both lose. So Mm -hmm. it was very hard narratively to straddle that but i thought they did it well by the choices they made as directors in this episode yeah no one comes out on top and i think it would do a disservice to the story if someone did come out on top i mean we talk about what they gained on an individual level mm-hmm. but communally in, in terms of the groundwork that they did and the essentially political parties that they built dissolved yeah at the end credits, they say that she continued to like run the Eagle Forum and in some sense run these group of women. But their prominence was precisely in the 70s, the same way that a lot of the feminist movement, most of their momentum, the second wave feminist movement, excuse me, most of their momentum could be also found at the same time. And so afterward, you know, even though Gloria Steinem may have written books or had speaking engagements and is still Gloria Steinem, the kind of political power that she was building on the hill in the 70s was not the same in the 80s, 90s, thousands, and all that. Yeah. I think in our conversation, we have answered some of the questions that we put in our previous conversation, but let's check in on a couple of things. So when we first talked a few weeks ago, we put the show on notice about race. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was after the, the Shirley Chisholm episode. So the show actually did show Phyllis's racism her Mm -hmm. they were they did not shy away from her involvement with the clan Mm -hmm. showing her she's willing to do whatever it takes to get the power that she needs and what i loved also in the on the race question is in the this last episode there was a call back to her relationship with her maid her name is willie she's played by novi edwards Mm -hmm. and she relies on her to raise her kids to manage the house and in this Last episode, they explicitly showed Phyllis not able to go to this big meeting that she was going to. And she makes Willie change her plans to go pick up her daughter. Mm -hmm. And so I love that callback. And I think they showed us some characters with Flo Kennedy and with Margaret Sloan. They were secondary characters. They were not part of the main, the only main non-white character was Shirley Chisholm. Mm -hmm. I think the show straddled the race questions well. I agree. I also think that there's a moment in which Willie's friend comes in and she goes, girl, you could make a cookbook. You know, you have such great recipes. And she goes, yeah, I could do a whole pages. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but I could do whole pages on, you know, uh, ERA bread recipes. 
Um, and knowing that the bed was such a big tool in terms of gaining political traction with the Stop Yellow group, right, giving the bread to the congressmen and stuff like yeah. that. I mean, essentially, right, Black women's labor. Yeah, yeah. It's part and par- parcel of Phyllis's success. Yes. And I thought it was interesting how they kind of highlighted that without being heavy-handed. Yeah. You know, it was like a very brief moment, very brief scene, but it's something that, like, stuck out to me. And even though I think that, you know, the way Gloria dealt with Margaret Sloan was very interesting, very kind of cold. Yes. More concerned about Ms. and, and you know, her how she would look to the public that, you know, Margaret left and went to Oakland and what that meant. Also, okay, did I miss something? Or did her, like, black boyfriend fall off the face of earth? They just didn't really pursue that story. They just... So I think Gloria's love life was not the focus. That's also interesting, too, because Margaret says she feels like a token. And they're like, what is that? What does that mean? Right? And mm-hmm. their strategy to deal with race is to not deal with race. Yeah. And we know that that's not how things should go. I think, yeah, I think the way, ultimately, they wrap things up. I will say they did my boy Jail's dirt. They could have had a little breakup scene or something <laughs> in there. You know, they just plucked him out and killed him all. <laughs> Especially since in the first few episodes, he was such a big part of Gloria's life and exactly. her story in this show. Yeah, he was very prominent. You know, he was there. He had lines. He went with her to the Guggenheim party. Yeah. Like, what happened to him? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I really wanted a story about Flo Kennedy. Like, I wanted an episode about Flo Kennedy. So yeah. this was nine episodes, you know, FX on Hulu or whatever you're called. You could have made it 10 episodes and given us an episode about Flo Kennedy. And I know Nisi Nash would have ate that up. That's my girl. She could act. <laughs> so if there is one thing I would put the show on notice for at the end, I would give them a minus, is that we didn't get that episode. Yeah, we needed a little more. I'm not going to lie. Like, I, ultimately, great job. Bravo yeah. to Davi. Bravo to the whole team. There was a few moments that I was like, I want to sit with that a little more. I want to see that play out a little more. I want to, you know. And I mean, ultimately, making shows is like a balancing act. Yes. Because if there was too much, you know, we'd also have that, that criticism and say, yeah, we didn't need that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, an episode for Flo would have been really interesting, really amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So do you want to, let's rate the performances. So let's talk okay. about Kate. So I'm very grateful for this show for giving me nine hours of a Kate Blanchett show, because this is like, <laughs> what, four movies? Um <laughs> And it's just such a brilliant performance. She tar- she charted this woman's life so well from the beginning to the end. The show gave her so much material to work with. Mm-hmm. And so we got so many close-ups. We got so many scenes that I think are going to be played, you know, when she gets her honorary Oscar, I don't know, in 20 <laughs> years or uh, a Golden Globe or something. There are scenes from this show that will definitely pl- play in her highlight reel. Mm-hmm. Is there one particular scene that you think will play in her highlight reel? First of all, I think the scene when she goes to confession about her son. Absolutely. I think the relationship with her son actually is something that was really heartbreaking yes. for, for me to witness. But for her to so explicitly state in confession precisely her issue with her son was, was devastating. And, um, you know, because people, I think, often can't see past their own ideology and how that hurts the people that they love, the people that they're, they're most close to. Like, you gave birth to that person. Yeah. You know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> the way she's acting, and the way she responds to that information. But even, like, the scene where she gets the wallet from his male suitor, we imagine. Yeah. Um, yes. And she goes, you have to be more careful. Like, those little, I think the scenes where she exercises nuance um, the most and restraint that yes. she knows, but she's not going to let on she knows because she has to upkeep, you know, her, her public-facing image. Yeah. And, um, be a debutante about certain things, a housewife about certain things, I think yeah. are really interesting. I think that's when her performance really comes alive. Yeah. Not so much when she's like an adversary to the, the feminist or um, an adversary even to the women in her own group. That's expected. But when you see it play out in really intimate spaces, mm-hmm. it, it, it hurts a little more. It's, it hits different, really. Yeah. I think the whole last episode is she's brilliant from the beginning to the end. I loved everything she did in that ball. We already talked about the backstage moment. Mm-hmm. We talked about the moment in the elevator and obviously the last three minutes from the moment she picks up that phone until she sits down to peel that apple is just brilliant, brilliant. I know I'm going to be rewinding and watching that a few times. 
You're a stan. <laughs> I'm a stan. Okay. I don't hide it. I have a podcast about it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So let's look at the other actresses. They're all brilliant. And so mm-hmm. um, I don't you know, want to rank them per se. Instead of ranking them, if you were to choose three between these women, just three, mm-hmm. Rose Byrne, Uzu Aduba, Margot Martindale, Tracy Ullman, Ari Grainer, Sarah Paulson, and Elizabeth Banks. Who's your top three? Uzu Aduba, definitely. I mean, like, I think all the time about the moment when she pulls the gray up in the hotel and talks to whoever's on the other side. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Love her. Sarah Pulse, I'm sorry. That's my girl. I have to give it to her. Like, the way she, she carried a lot of those scenes with the women convening, I'm not going to lie. Like, even just her, like, the arc of her losing her naivete. Yes. From beginning to end is really brilliant. Not just in the episode in which we kind of see everything fall apart, but the, like, slow descent to that moment mm-hmm. in which she starts to ask a few more questions in these meetings and she starts to propose a few more strategies and she starts to say, maybe we should do this and not that. You know, I think those are really brilliant moments that are kind of placed and dropped throughout the series until we get to episode eight. And then, um, Rose Byrne, I'm sorry, she ate that wig. <laughs> <laughs> that wig in the beginning, like, girl, she was killing me. And then I also forget, like, that like, she's Australian. Yes. <laughs> you know, so I also think about that with, like, the accents and everything. But they're all really great. They're all really great, like, yeah. and, and I say all the time, like, I really, really enjoyed Tracy Ullman's performances as Betty Friedan, yeah. like, a lot. Yes. Um, yeah, she just had a lot going for it, and, and played obnoxious, but also, like, sincere in a very interesting way, you know, like, she's a pain in the ass, but, like, her sincerity is hard to beat. She has something she's going after, she's going for, she's a lot more seasoned, she's been in the game longer than them, and she reminds them of that, as she should, even though she's wrong a lot of the time. <laughs> You know, yes. she still was like, I came, I saw, I conquered. I laid the foundation for us to even be having this conversation. That's true. I, I love Tracy Ullman, too. I will agree with you on Sarah Paulson, and I will agree with you on Uzu. I think both were amazing. I think Rose Byrne is also great, but mm-hmm. my heart belongs with Margot Martindale. So I will add her to my three with Sarah and Uzu. Bella is so abrasive, mm-hmm. but she gave her such heart. And I really love that about her. And I just thought her episode was one of my favorites. And just her, every time that she's on, she was funny, she was warm, but she was also kind of really just somebody, you know, with sharp edges that you don't like. But because I think she's played by Margot, I could just not take my eyes off her. So that's why I'll choose her along with Uzu, who's so brilliant. And I think... Her episode as Shirley Chisholm was my favorite hour until this last hour. Agreed. It's up there. It's like one of the best, you know. And I think that as an actress, I just want to see her in more things. You know what I mean? Like, killed it. Killed it. Even, I mean, I think I said this in the last episode, but just about choices and decisions when portraying a historical figure and not taking it to a realm where it felt cartoony, which can be easy to do with politicians. And a politician like Shirley Chisholm who had very, you know, distinctive way of talking you know she had a lisp mm-hmm. um you know not trying to replicate those things because then it, it, it diminishes the performance it diminishes the person that you're trying to play in some sense when it feels off it feels like an impression or like an snl skit as opposed to like living with the qualities of mm-hmm. shirley and i think she did her research on those qualities what do i want to exude what does she stand for and how do i put my own spin on that yeah. um playing her yeah so mrs america this was a fantastic six weeks with spending it in the history of the women's movement with these amazing actresses um it made this quarantine life just a little bit better yes a little (laughs) bit better i would like to be outside yeah absolutely (laughs) nonetheless Uh, i didn't say bearable just a little bit better (laughs) exactly but also part of my enjoyment of the show is getting to talk with you about it a couple of times. So Taylor, thank thank you you. so much. Thanks. (laughs) Thank you for coming on the show and coming back to talk to me. And so we can put a bow on Mrs. America. And before we go, let our listeners know where they can find you. Uh, You can find me on the internet. That's Twitter or Instagram. 
Um, I'm T-Y-L-R-M-M-T-G, which is my name without vowels. I was feeling real edgy when I put that together, you know? But yeah, I'm at me. Let me know your thoughts, your opinions, what you, you know, thought about Mrs. America or film and TV in general. And Taylor is a fantastic follow on Twitter. It's <laughs> one of my favorite Twitter feeds. Um, one of the other things that are making the quarantine bearable. Oh, thank you. I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter at me underscore says and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Sundays with Kate. All our previous episodes of the show are available at sundayswithkate.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>